I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning with me, if you have a copy of God's Word, to Matthew chapter 19. As this morning we're going to examine verses 13 through 26, and the bulletin it has us going through verse 30, but we're going to stop at verse 26 this morning and look at verses 30 and 27 rather and following into chapter 20 next Lord's Day, God willing. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 13. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, He departed from there. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not Commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And Come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Once again, O God, through even the reading of the scriptures, we are inclined to assume that we likely have more in common with the young man and the disciples who are missing something that you're trying to say than than with those who might understand the truth. We pray that you would help us to understand, not merely by the clarity of your word, which it is so clear, but by the presence and the ministry of your own spirit to open the eyes of our blind hearts. 
We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The text we've read this morning presents to us two very different scenes, but they are placed alongside one another here in the Gospel of Matthew for very intentional purposes. It's not by accident. It's not as though the Holy Spirit is just recording various scenes and just needs to find a place to kind of fit in that little precious scene with the children and, and oh yeah, I need to talk about that that occasion with the rich young ruler. No, the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author of this gospel, this letter which records the account of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is very intentional. This is not the first time that we have seen, witnessed a scene where Jesus is interacting with children. Just a few pages back in your Bible, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 2 and 3, we see there that Jesus there called a child to himself. And he said there, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 19, this scene in which children are being brought to Jesus, and then this scene in which this wealthy man is interacting with Jesus, the Holy Spirit is by repetition trying to impress something upon our dark hearts. Let's begin by looking at verses 13 through 15. I want you to notice that the concern here is the kingdom of heaven and then As we look ahead a little bit, the question of verse 16, the man asks, how may I I obtain eternal life? The real focus here is not how Jesus interacts with children, though that is precious and, and not for nothing. We should know that our Lord and Savior is the kind of man that children love and love to be around. To be around Jesus is to be around a man who is kind, loving, gentle, gracious, affectionate, pure, and sincere in every way. And what boy or girl doesn't enjoy being around someone like that? But this whole section is about eternal life. It is primarily not so much about how Jesus cares for little children as it is about the question of how may we obtain eternal life. And the Holy Spirit is trying to help us understand how it is that we may enter the kingdom of heaven. The Old Testament teaching was clear on the fact that there is a future There is a future for every man, woman, boy, and girl. There is an eternity in place for every man and woman. For example, in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, there the angel says to Daniel, speaking of the future, that in the last days, quote, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, 
these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. In other words, yes, in the Old Testament, there was clear teaching about the resurrection and about the fact that in the last days, men and women will be raised from the dead, raised from the grave, from the dust of the ground, to stand before God and to either enter into eternal life, into the kingdom of God, or to be banished and to experience eternal judgment in a place called hell. There's an eternity ahead for every man and woman. There's an eternity ahead for every one of us here this morning. Even if you may desire that just death itself in the grave is the end, that is not your prerogative. It was not your prerogative on the first day that you were born, and it is not your prerogative as to whether your body stays in the ground or not. It will not. There is a God. He is sovereign over your body, and he will reconstitute your body, whether you like it or not, to stand before him. That's his right as the creator of all men and women. Think about it. We live not only for these few fleeting days, but we live as those who will be raised from the dead and live either in heaven or in hell for endless eternity. So that raises a very, very important question. How do I make sure that I will obtain eternal life and not eternal death? How do I know for sure, that I will spend eternity, endless eternity, future, in the kingdom of heaven and not in the place of judgment. That is what this passage is about. And so in verse 13, we are brought to a scene, excuse me, in which some children were brought to Jesus so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. This is very reasonable. I'm telling you, if Jesus was around and my children were little, I would certainly be trying to bring my children to Jesus, have him lay his hands on them and pray for them. Um, This is reasonable. This is good. By having his hand upon them, there's it's not like this magic or something, though there probably were some parents who, who saw him heal people with his hands, and so they were thinking of it in just that way. But this has a biblical precedence. The Old Testament <clears throat> speaks of when a, a patriarch or someone blessed someone else, they often placed their hand upon that person. It's not that somehow power or energy passes through the hand, but it's a identifying with the other person and this person of, of position or of authority before God, signifying that as a representative of God, that there is a blessing upon this individual. And so these parents and others are bringing these, these children. Now, these are very small children. These are very small children. We know that because in the parallel account, in Luke chapter 18, verse 15, 
There, Luke says of this same scene that they were bringing even their babies to him. These are small children. Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 16, again, another gospel that's describing this scene in Mark 10, verse 16, it says, quote, and Jesus took them in his arms and blessed them. These are children that he's able to hold with in one hand, one arm, while he's able with his hand to put his hand upon them. And and those who are parents, we remember those days when our children were little. Some of you are still have those little ones where we could pick them up. We, our family, um, we were just able after years of trying to get some very old, well, twenty some odd year old home videos of the girls uh, put into digital format because we didn't even have a camcorder or machine that would work anymore to play the old videos. That's how old they were. And so we had to send them off to this company and get them you know, reformatted, all that. So we just began the other night as the girls came home to watch some of those videos. And I'm watching some of them and I'm watching you know, Ruthie and Catherine and Phoebe as, and as a young dad. I mean, I'm just, I loved playing with the girls and, and wrestling with them and taking them by, you know, a leg and hanging them upside down and and uh, they loved it and uh, it was a lot of fun and I could do that then I can't now um, we'll just say I'm not strong enough we'll say it that way you know but but there's a reality that children when they get to a certain size uh, we as fathers even the most strong of us we're no longer lifting them up and carrying them so these are little children that's the point these are little children and that's important to note why Because as little children, they are weak. They are fragile. They are completely dependent. They didn't go to Jesus. Did you notice that? Some children were brought to Jesus. They they are so little, they can't even walk, presumably, to go to Jesus. They don't know what they're doing, per se. They are brought. They are dependent. They cannot work. They may not even have the ability to speak or walk. They have no money. They have no means. They have no, they have no voice to, to tell people, excuse me, I'd like to step aside. I'd like to see Jesus. They are utterly, completely dependent. That is the main observation we need to take away. They are completely dependent. They have no means or ability of their own. And if they are to enter into the kingdom of heaven, clearly it will not be because of any righteousness that they've done. It will not be because of any good works that they've done. It's certainly not because of any money or possessions that they have that they can give. They don't have any of those things. If these little ones are to enter into the kingdom, it will be in the arms of the king and by his will, his gracious will, and no other way. That's it. By the king's will and grace alone could these little ones enter the kingdom. And Jesus declares in verse 14, For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The disciples haven't gotten it by now that Jesus never wants children turned away. And they are 
telling people to, you know, keep, take the babies off the nursery somewhere. <laughs> Why? Because they want to protect Jesus' time. They want to make sure that it's useful. And these little ones, what can they do? And Jesus rebuked his disciples again. This isn't the first time. And says, verse 14, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Does Jesus mean that basically somehow we have to figure out a way for all of us to be made into literally physically physical babies in order to enter the kingdom? No. It's such as these. It's just like what he said in chapter 18, verse 3, unless you become like. So it's an attribute, a characteristic of these children that is necessary, required for entrance into the kingdom, and it is this. Recognizing that you are utterly, completely dependent and can do nothing of your own to enter. That's the key. Entrance to the kingdom belongs to those and only those who are small, helpless, dependent, and can do no work of their own to earn entrance. That's the point. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The scene changes. We come to what is frequently called the scene, this episode, Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. We know from this text that he is wealthy. We know from the other gospels that he is a young man. And this interaction is is in very stark contrast with the scene we've just witnessed in verses 13 to 15 of these little children. This is a grown man. He may be a young man, but he is a grown man. He is old enough that he is able to work. He is able to acquire possessions. He is able, he is of an age where he is an owner of property. He, he owned, the text says, much property. So he's of an age of accountability, certainly, and he is able to work. He does have some money. He does have ability to do many things. He is able to understand the law of God and to strive to keep it and so forth. It's a very, very different scene. Let's look at it together. First, in verse 16 and 17, Jesus challenges this young man's own view of Jesus. This young man comes to Jesus and says, teacher or rabbi, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now, this is not a trick question. This is not a Pharisee. He's not trying to set up Jesus for a fall. This is a sincere young man with a very important question. It is the question, as we saw together in the beginning of this message. What shall I do that I may obtain eternal life, that I may be on the right side of that fork in the road that everyone is on? What may I do? What shall I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus says, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who's good. 
Now, why does Jesus respond in that way? It's very wise. The, the man has, has a problem. He has numerous problems, but one of them is he understands Jesus is a good teacher. Rather, he understands he's a teacher. He understands he's, he's a powerful teacher. He does not yet understand and has not taken into account who Jesus really is. God alone ultimately is good. He is the origin of goodness. He is good, and he is good all the time, as we say. And every reflection of goodness that you've ever experienced in another man or woman made in the image of God is a reflection of the goodness of God. God alone is thoroughly good, which means that it is ultimately a divine attribute, a characteristic that belongs originally to God. God is good. It's, it's, God alone is good. We maybe do good deeds. We maybe know people who have done good things for us, and that is true and that is sincere, but there is not one of us that is good through and through. So Jesus directs him to, there's only one who is good. And why do you ask me about what is good? In other words, Jesus is directing the young man's attention to the character of Jesus. That Jesus, that he's, he's exposing the fact that the young man has failed to recognize that he is not good enough. And that Jesus shares the character and the quality of God in that Jesus himself is good one with the Father. So Jesus challenges the man's view of Jesus. The man respects Jesus, but apparently isn't prepared to identify Jesus with the living God and the goodness of the Father. Secondly, I want you to notice that Jesus challenges the man's view of himself. Jesus challenges the man's view of himself. Jesus calls upon the man after he asks what he should do. He says, keep the commandments, verse 17. Keep the commandments. Now, Jesus is not being crafty. He's not being tricky. He's not mocking the man. Jesus knows full well that there is no man that can obey the law perfectly and thereby obtain righteousness. In fact, the law was never given for that purpose as a way for those who are sinners by nature, inherited from Adam, that somehow they could, by obeying the law, obtain eternal life. The law was never given to obtain eternal life. Jesus knows that. Jesus has encouraged keeping of the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law far from it. So he's not mocking the young man. He's not tricking him, but he's telling him sincerely, keep the commandments. In other words, he's directing him basically to asking the man to consider Is he really of the same character as Jesus himself, the sinless one? He's not. But the young man isn't getting it, and he's not put off by the question. 
And so the man says, well, which ones? Jesus says, keep the commandments. And the man says, well, which ones? Jesus then cites five of the Ten Commandments, along with the summary commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Love your neighbor as yourself. How many commandments are there? Ten. Just checking to make sure if I lost you. Ten. Ten commandments. The first four had to do with being directed towards God. You can actually argue the first five are directed to God. The, the second five are directed towards relation to one another. But Jesus cites five of the Ten Commandments, especially the second half of the Ten Commandments, related to how we are to relate to one another as men and women. We don't kill each other. We don't murder each other. We are faithful to our marriage covenant. We don't engage in sexual immorality and so on. We don't steal from one another. And then he summarizes from Deuteronomy chapter 20 that we are to love our neighbor as Ourself. Ex, sorry, Exodus 20, verse 12. We are to love our neighbor. In other words, in all those things, those commands, we are treating one another as we would want to be treated in faithfulness and kindness, in truth and sincerity. So Jesus lists some of the Ten Commandments, and still the man is not put off. He says, verse 20, all these things I have kept. Now we hear that. I, I don't know about you, but I hear that and I think, pfft. Boy, this guy really is proud. But I'm not so sure that the text is exposing him to that kind of harshness. Because in chapter, in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, in the other gospel account of this exact same scene, after this answer, when the man says, I have kept all these, Jesus, in Mark 10, verse 21, we're told, looking at him, Jesus looking at the young man, Jesus felt a love for him. That's fascinating. Now, Jesus knows that this young man hasn't kept it all perfectly, but apparently, this man is sincere. And when he says, I have kept all these, he's not bragging, apparently. He apparently is a young Jewish man who has been taught the law of God, fears God, and has sincerely striven to obey those commands fastidiously and in sincerity. He has struggled. He has been careful. He has watched himself day after day, and he has tried with all his heart to obey those commandments, and Jesus doesn't mock him. Jesus looks on him with love. In other words, Jesus recognizes that there is a fear of God in this young man and that there is a love, a certain love for the law of God and that he's, he's at least in the right direction, but he's missing the main thing. And Jesus is going to direct him to that main thing that main commandment in just a moment. Notice that verse 19, Jesus mentioned, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he listed the other commands. And and the man says, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus says to him, verse 21 of Matthew 19, 
If you wish to be complete. Remember, Jesus has mentioned five of the commandments. Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Wow. Now what's that about? Is that telling us that somehow we'll be saved if we sell our possessions and go find some folks who are lacking means and give them and that's how we'll enter the kingdom? Not at all. Otherwise, entrance into the kingdom, frankly, would be pretty easy. It's not hard. And a lot of people try to gain their entrance into the kingdom by doing that. Maybe not selling everything, but even giving away most of what they have, thinking that somehow by benevolence they'll earn their way into the kingdom. That is not Jesus' point. So what's he getting at? If this young man is going to enter the kingdom, he must love Jesus and give up his self-sufficiency. Think about it. What does money and wealth give you? Money is, by the way, not inherently bad. A love of money is bad, but money's not bad. I mean, otherwise, we'd all be in a lot of trouble because we're using money all the time. Ecclesiastes says money is the answer to everything. I don't have the chapter and verse uh, right off the top of my head, but that verse, what's it saying there? It's saying that in reality, in life under the sun, you got to factor in, you need money to live. It's just the way it is. So figure it out to get it, ask God for it, and use it as a wise steward. So the point is not that money itself is somehow tainted or evil or bad. No, money is not inherently bad. We use money. God gives us money. We give money to others. We steward money. Money is not inherently bad. But think about what money does. Money and wealth grants, this is the key, ability and self-sufficiency. Grants power, ability, and self-sufficiency. It gives you power to do what others cannot do, and especially money can give a sense, a false sense, of self-sufficiency. I'm set because I've got this and I've got that and I've got this bank account and I've got this retirement account. I've got this house. I've got these assets. I've got these prospects. I've got this history. I've got this business. I've got so on. It is very, very hard for us to not begin to think that we've got this. It's what it gives. It it gives a It can give a false sense of self-sufficiency. Money and wealth grants a certain ability and self-sufficiency. Now, remember at this point, what did we learn about the little children? They don't have any ability, and they certainly don't have any self-sufficiency. So what Jesus is after is the man's heart. And the man at this point is thinking... That 
somehow he has the ability, even if it's in the moral realm of obeying the commandments, that somehow as this obviously wealthy man who in that culture would have, pres- would have presumed, been presumed that he was blessed of God, false teaching. I mean, it's true that God does give and God does bless some with wealth at times, but the impression of the disciples and others was surely that this man of all men is blessed and, and, and God has been good to him. And so the man is thinking that entrance into the kingdom and the obtaining of eternal life is somehow within his means and ability to obtain. And Jesus has to strip him of that because it's not true. It's not true. God is too holy. Oh, so holy. Our sin is too great. Oh, so great. For any of us, any man or woman possibly, to have the ability or the means to make atonement for sin and to enter into the kingdom. Doesn't matter how wealthy you are. Doesn't matter how much ability you have in every other factor of life. No matter how self-sufficient you are. And, and again, ability and self-sufficiency are, are, can be good things. We, as parents, want to rear our children so that they are, have a certain self-sufficiency. But when it comes to this area of entrance to the kingdom, self-sufficiency can damn you. Because you will never get into the kingdom by any resources or ability that you possess. The man doesn't understand that. So to help him understand that, Jesus as the man's savior, as the one who will, can and will, if the man turns, is willing, Jesus who has the means and the resources to make atonement for his sins, calls upon the young man to abandon his self-sufficiency. It's not required, of certainly, of every disciple, but in this case, Jesus knows that if this man can't be parted with his property, that he will never understand his true, his true dependence upon God. And so Jesus, in essence, says, you want, to obtain, you want to obtain eternal life? You want to enter the kingdom? Lose your self-sufficiency. Go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and you come follow me. Verse 22. When the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. It's amazing how much our possessions can possess us. But what his possessions represent, you understand why it is so hard to give up, is because his money and his property is his safety, it's his power, it's ability, it's his stature, it's his standing, it's his significance, it's his self-sufficiency. And if he gives that up, 
it feels like he's given up his very soul. And that's what Jesus wants. And so Jesus calls him, go and sell it all. The man is not willing to part with his property. He loves his self-sufficiency too much to make himself like a little child and place himself, as it were, in the arms of the king. The man in his pride wants desperately a way to get to heaven in which he can contribute at least a little something. And he can't, because God will not have it. The only way that he will be saved or none of us will be saved is through the work of Christ. And so he leaves, and Jesus turns to his disciples, verse 23, and says, truly I say to you. Now when Jesus says truly, that's not just you know, kind of New Testament language. He doesn't have anything else to say. So he says, truly I say to you. You know, that's how sometimes we treat it. No, when he says truly, he's looking these guys in the eye and trying through the use of the word truly, and sometimes he doubles it up, truly, truly. He's trying to say, guys, Take this in. Listen, truly, I'm saying, I'm telling you, truly, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because of his money, per se? No. No, because of his self-sufficiency. Because rich men and women have a very hard time realizing their dependence. Of course, that can be true of those who are not rich. There's many poor who will not enter the kingdom as there are those who are rich. But in this case, Jesus is reflecting on this interaction with this young man, and he wants his disciples to understand something. And they're shocked because Jesus goes on to say, I, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven of God. And the disciples get it. it that's impossible. I mean, you can get on all kinds of New Testament background. Was the eye of an evil in, in, in the stone wall or was it, was it a needle? It doesn't matter. Either way, it doesn't happen. The camel doesn't get through the eye of the needle. And so the disciples, understandably, are shocked. It says they were very astonished. I mean, they, I mean, if there ever was a prospect for the kingdom, it's this young man that was just standing before Jesus. They, they can see that he's prosperous, that he's been blessed of God. He knows the law of God. He's sincere in wanting to honor the law of God. And he's walking away. And Jesus just told them that it's those kind of men, for those kind of men that you just saw, it's very hard for them. In fact, nearly impossible for them to enter the kingdom. And so they say, who can be saved? They get it. They're still operating on a works-based salvation. So, I mean, if, if this guy can't be saved, who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Are possible. That's the point. To realize our inability when it comes to our salvation. 
and to recognize that if we are to be saved and to obtain eternal life, it is God and God alone who has the power and the ability to save sinners. It's only God. And it is miraculous that God can save sinners who have a sin debt that is infinite in nature, and yet through the death of his Son, God pays that infinite sin debt, provides for the sinner a payment the sinner can never make, provides for the sinner a Savior, a salvation that the sinner can never obtain, and brings into the kingdom and into eternal life those who have no ability, no money, no means, no way of their own to come into the kingdom. God does it. And he does save some rich men, by the way. As impossible as it is, he does. How does he do it? Because God changes the heart sometimes of even rich men and takes them from being men who are impressed with their own ability and their own self-sufficiency. And by his own spirit, God gives them a new heart. So even with all their money, they understand they are bankrupt before God and wholly dependent upon him for their salvation. You want an example? At the end of this very gospel, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27 Jesus is dead. Jesus is in the grave. Who is it that has the courage to go to Pilate and to ask for the body of Jesus? Jesus is not in the grave yet. Who is it that goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Christ? A rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. And the text says, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea. God changes the hearts of the rich and the poor. This is the hope that we have. And so in closing this morning, the teaching of this passage, the juxtaposition, the side-by-side positioning of the little children and the proud, self-sufficient young man is trying to teach us No one has the ability on their own to enter the kingdom of heaven. Hold on to the presumption of your own self-sufficiency in relation to the kingdom of God, and you will never enter it, but only into judgment. But positively, the call this morning is for those by God's grace and by his spirit, if you realize and confess the truth, What Jesus is calling us to is just the truth. He's not calling us to play games or to make believe. If we realize and confess the truth that you are like a helpless child before God in regard to your salvation, that is your status, my status, and the status of everyone. You have no ability, you have no means, you have no resources by which you can lay hold of the kingdom of God. You are helpless and you are utterly dependent upon God. You must throw yourself upon him if you are to be saved. And if you do, humble yourself, call upon him to be saved, you will be welcomed. 
How do we know that? Because you have a Savior who commands, do not hinder them. For such as these, to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. God loves to welcome and to embrace helpless sinners who call upon him for salvation. Is that you today? Young or old, boy or girl, man or woman? Have you really recognized your helpless condition? Have you abandoned your self-sufficiency? And have you called upon God? If not, do so today. And if you have, for those brothers and sisters in Christ, there was a time where you got it. You were bankrupt. You called upon God to be saved. But here we are. Years have gone by. Let me ask us. I'm asking myself. Have we become self-sufficient again? Having, been, and having received entrance into the kingdom by grace, are we now advancing by works? May it not be so. Let's pray. Oh God, what a God you are to save sinners by grace alone. Grant us the hearts of little children. And I pray that there may be some even here today that call upon you to be saved and that are welcomed into the arms of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.